Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America Podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and here we go. Welcome to the Great America Show. Great to have you with us. I guarantee you we have lots to discuss, to sort through, and to cogitate over for days to come. And we are the right place for all patriots committed to the fundamental principles of truth, justice, and the American way, the only way here on the Great America Show. So welcome, and let's begin the proceedings. Here's where we seem to be. The Truckers Freedom Convoy resolving peacefully, at least on the Ambassador Bridge, that is now clear and commerce once again moving between Canada and the United States. We're told some two dozen protesters were arrested over the past 24 hours. But in Ottawa, some eight hours driving time from the Ambassador Bridge, the Freedom Convoy protests go on. And good for the truckers who are demonstrating against vaccine mandates and an imperious authoritarian government and their all too precious and princely prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who is an insufferable preening popinjay and reliably useless. All he has to do is say no more mandates. Get on with it, Mr. Trudeau. Turning to Russia and its strong man, Vladimir Putin, there is no word of an invasion of Ukraine. Not yet, not even as President Joe Biden would have it, a minor incursion. That's a bit like my grandfather, Dr. Dobbs used to say of surgery. Someone else's surgery may be minor, but your own is always major. Putin, despite the view from the White House and corporate news media, has already accomplished much without so much as firing a single shot. And the witless West has been oblivious as he's carried out de facto annexations of Belarus, where he already has 30,000 of his troops in place, in position, and ready to go. And Moldova, where he has several more Russian brigades in reserve. In plain English, if Putin chooses not to invade Ukraine, he has successfully already pressed Russia's borders outward, effectively annexing Belarus to the north and Moldova to the south of Ukraine. And nary a word, a single word from the European Union, NATO, or for that matter, the Biden White House. The only open question, it seems to me, is it enough for Putin? Or does he want even more, ever more? I personally believe Putin's calculations have already proved he's taken into account and discount Biden's weakness and his own strategic geographic advantages. His foreign minister, Sergei Viktorovich Lavrov, is counseling him now to permit diplomacy to go on, to play out, 
which suggests Putin is very much already aware of his fait accomplis and the success that has secured his and Russia's interest in blunting the Western expansion of Europe's influence. We shall see and hope. And over the weekend, special counsel John Durham making it very clear that Russiagate, the Russian hoax, and the Ukrainian hoax as well, are very likely now to be revealed for what they possibly were, a Clinton-Democrat-Obama-inspired conspiracy to stop Donald Trump's presidential campaign and to overthrow his presidency. With us today is Breitbart, senior editor-at-large, author of one of my favorite books, among the many that he's authored, The Trumpian Virtues. Welcome to the Great America Show, Joel Pollack. We appreciate your time and great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Lou. Let's, let's start, if we may, with the Freedom Convoy. Uh, I, that demonstration has now gone global. Uh, it has, uh, I think, really uh, motivated a lot of people even in America right now, which is sort of protest on the right averted. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Let me try that again. I think it has motivated everyone uh, in this country who is now concerned about vaccine mandates, the, the, the people who are rising up to say to this government, you've gone too far, far too authoritarian. And that is what's happening around the globe. Your thoughts? It's fascinating that Canada is teaching Americans about freedom. It's usually the other way around. But the truckers with their convoy and, might I add, a convoy in sub-zero temperatures have shown not only that there is some coherence and enthusiasm behind the opposition to these mandates, but also that Justin Trudeau lacks the political will to resolve the crisis in a way that's satisfactory even to his own left-wing allies. He's getting hit from the right and from the left in Canada. Right. And he has trampled basic democratic freedoms. Canada has a charter of rights and freedoms that include the rights to peaceful assembly, right to earn a livelihood, and so forth. And he has violated those. So Canadian public opinion, although it's quite divided on this issue, and many Canadians don't like the tactics used by the truckers, they like things to be nice and orderly and peaceful. Canadian public opinion agrees with the substance of what the truckers are doing. And it's no accident that the Premier of Ontario reversed some of the mandates that they had there. It's no accident that Democrats in the United States, looking at this trucker convoy, decided to drop some of their mask mandates in deep blue states, California, New York, other places. Right. So this really was a signal of the degree of opposition to these mandates. People are okay with individuals taking precautions for themselves, but they don't want to be forced to do it. And they don't want to be threatened with losing their jobs if they disagree. There are two instances there in which Joe Biden again revealed himself to all of America and the contrast with the Joe Biden who campaigned in 2020 for the office he holds. And one is uh, saying to those governors who are already uh, distancing themselves from the falling uh, Biden uh, and his authoritarian style of government, they're saying, mandates are at an end and we are separating from your CDC and all of your nonsense and Fauci can go do whatever he must, but he's not going to counsel us. And with the Canadians where Biden said uh, to Trudeau, get tough, do whatever you have to, to clear the ambassador bridge. There's something else that Biden has been saying, or at least the Biden administration, 
they have now decided to spin history, to rewrite history, and to say that Biden was never in favor of lockdowns. Jen Psaki, the press secretary, even tried to argue that most of the lockdowns happened under the previous president, as if Trump had supported them. Of course, Trump was opposed to the lockdowns. He did start the two week or 15 days to stop the spread. But that's when this was just beginning. And afterwards, he campaigned for people to open their economies. He fought the blue state governors all the way. And Biden campaigned from his basement for most of 2020. We're supposed to believe now that he was opposed to lockdowns. (laughs) That shows you how toxic the draconian measures of some of these blue state governors and mayors have become politically. Democrats know it. And so they're trying to blame Trump for the lockdowns. It's absurd, but enough of them, I suppose, are going to cling to that lifeboat. Well, and we know full well that the the leftists, uh, even Marxist, uh, corporate-owned media uh, will support entirely whatever revision that he uh, prefers uh, and dutifully go about uh, structuring a, 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 an avenue of escape uh, for him. I don't think it'll work, but I think we all understand that's exactly the play that they will bring. Right. They won't fact check that statement. Maybe one or two will, but they will leave it alone and move on to the next thing. That's usually what happens when a narrative that helps Democrats is so absurd as to be unbelievable or is simply shown to be untrue. We saw that with the Russia collusion story and so forth. They just forget about it and move on. There's no accountability. And that's going to happen with this as well. They're going to claim that it was Trump who caused the lockdowns or was behind the lockdowns. and Biden wants to open up the economy when, in fact, it was exactly the opposite. And everybody knows that Biden's core voters, the sort of liberal gentry, were the most pro-lockdown, pro-mask, pro-mandates of any constituency in the country. Many of them are still there in that mindset, and they are aghast at what they're seeing their governors do. They don't like the truckers. They don't like the popular opposition to some of these mandates, even though the mandates don't really improve coronavirus results. We've seen that time and time again, these mandates are largely the result of policymakers wanting to assert their control rather than any response to scientific evidence that they work. The science that uh, we were to follow, all of us, has really betrayed us because it turns out it wasn't science. It wasn't peer reviewed. It was not careful and uh, thoughtfully and uh, with any duration studied. it's it's stunning that uh, I will never forget Dr. Fauci declaring himself to be science, which is one of the most extraordinary moments I think uh, any of us have seen. When, in point of fact, the science is proving that most of the si- early science was utterly upside down uh, and wrongheaded. Americans have a bias toward what works. So there's no pro God bless or- us. Yeah, the the pro or anti-science bias is not really a thing. In a pandemic or in a crisis, people want solutions that work. So they will take the scientific information into account and they'll weight it based on probability. What do we know about this? How likely is it to be true? And we balance it against the economic costs of doing some of what the scientists suggest we ought to do. This is everyday decision-making. If you go to your doctor and you have, God forbid, some kind of an illness, you will explore different options. You could take a more invasive, drastic option for the illness you have, but that could put you out of work for a while. Or you could try something more light, something a little bit less likely to work perhaps, but one that'll allow you to stay on the job or 
continue to enjoy certain activities, whatever it is. We make these cost-benefit analyses in our own lives. And that's what people expected from the people making public policy during the pandemic. As long as Fauci was held in check by some of the economic advisors on Trump's team who were pointing out some of the severe costs of doing what Fauci wanted to do, you had more of a balance. And Trump, to his great credit, decentralized the management of this crisis. There was a great article by Christopher DeMuth in the Wall Street Journal in 2020 pointing out how Trump, unlike all of his predecessors, Republicans and Democrats, Trump had not increased the power of the federal government to deal with the pandemic. He did some sweeping things. There was some spending and so forth, but he actually decentralized the management of the pandemic. So he preserved the ability of the states to experiment with different models. We saw the Florida model. We saw the New York model. We saw which one worked. And there was a balance in the Trump administration's approach. He also, with Operation Warp Speech, tried to experiment with different therapeutics, different vaccines. He invested in things before he knew they would work because he wanted to be ready for whatever contingency arose in the future. Biden threw that all out the window. With the Biden administration, we got the old habits of increasing the power of the government, mandating things, regulating things, and putting all of their eggs in one basket. They took the vaccine program that Trump left them, and they said, that's going to be our ticket out of here. They ignored the therapeutics. They ignored testing, which was a big campaign talking point for Biden. They did not put any effort into developing these alternatives. They tried to shut down states that were doing something different. Biden called it Neanderthal when Texas and Florida and some other states decided to drop some of the mask mandates. There was this resistance to anything that resembled state autonomy, decentralization, and Fauci was made all powerful. And that's when things really went wrong. Not only did it increase division in American society, but it actually made the response to the pandemic worse because every mistake that the federal government made was now compounded. When they suspended the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example, that increased vaccine hesitancy. When they decided they weren't going to buy tests several months ago, that meant they weren't prepared for the Omicron variant when it arrived. All of these decisions were made because they increased the power of the central government and they gave scientists absolute authority. But you need balance. Science is not the only value, not the only virtue. You have to balance it with economics. You have to balance it with moral philosophy. You have to balance it with a sense of what people's preferences are. Sometimes people will prefer a different course and you have to take that into account. There are people who would rather be free and face a greater risk of infection, free to open their businesses, free to go to work. There are people who would rather do that. Now, it does affect other people, which is the point where Democrats complain that's the problem with dropping these mandates. You're not just affecting your own health. It could be affecting someone else's health by transmitting the disease. But we have had so much experience in dealing with it that we can account for all of that. We can account for it. But it's also interesting to me, Joel, that, in fact, as uh, hyper frothing uh, as many on the left were talking about your endangering Uh, all of society with your uh, hard-headed insistence on uh, no vaccination. It turns out that the number of people uh, who did contract Omicron did so in many cases uh, with double and triple vaccinations. And in fact, there is still open science on whether or not those vaccinations made them uh, susceptible, increasingly susceptible, uh, to the uh, to the wave of Omicron. Right. And again, you need a variety of strategies because the reliance on the vaccine alone meant that once the vaccine could not contain these breakthrough infections, you had no other alternatives. Trump 
talked about therapeutics all the time. Whenever you heard Trump talk about coronavirus or Kaylee McKennedy in the press briefing room, they were always talking about not just Operation Warp Speed, but they were talking about therapeutics. They were talking about Remdesivir. They were talking about experimental ideas. I mean, Regeneron talking about uh, all that uh, stuff hydroxychloroquine uh, you know. yeah whether it works or not i mean the thing with hydroxychloroquine was that it wasn't at harmful at least it had been used for so many decades without serious side effects from most right. people and so we were in the middle of the pandemic at that point and so trump was willing to try anything now democrats were the ones spreading fear at that time you had Absolutely. governors in new york and california you had kamala harris joe biden talking about how they would not trust the vaccine they needed to test it again and all sorts of nonsense but that was just about political power. Once Trump was out of office, they decided that it was their vaccine and they were responsible for it. But again, that desire for power meant that they ignored the other alternatives. They didn't want to be part of the therapeutics that Trump was there developing. And so this conglomeration, this, uh, this accumulation of power is not good for public policy. We need a balance and you need a decentralized approach, which is what will remain so remarkable about what Trump did in 2020. We need a vigorous American system of government, a constitutional republic, uh, and federalism that is honored. Not, not try uh, you know, the uh, the target of the the Marxist left in this country, and no one should make any mistake about this. This is a strain of Marxism running throughout not only the political left in this country, but also through corporate America, through our permanent bureaucracy as well and even expressed uh, in simple things like school boards and uh, city council meetings uh, where, you will, where you see autocrats rising up uh, from, from a, a neighborhood to take over the thinking of an entire community. It, it's, it's really quite interesting to see what is happening to this country. Uh, not all of it, thank goodness, but, and thank God, uh, but much of it. Uh, your thoughts? Well, thankfully, we still have the states, we still have federalism. And people have explained the crisis in Canada to me by pointing out that Canada doesn't have a Ron DeSantis, that Canada never had a province that followed a different path. Even though the provinces in Canada did have the authority to set their own policies to some degree, even the more conservative Western provinces had vaccine passports and things like that. There was nobody willing to stand outside the consensus and say, we're going to try things a different way. And Ron DeSantis in Florida took all kinds of heat for that. He was constantly the obsession of the Washington media. In fact, the White House press corps seemed eager to ask the Biden press representatives to attack Ron DeSantis rather than asking the White House what they were, what Biden was doing and why it was failing. But that's the beauty of the American system, the preservation of federalism and the authority of the states. It is under attack from Democrats. It's under attack from both sides, really, of the establishment in Washington. But it is what allowed this country to pull itself out of the depths of the coronavirus recession. You know, when Florida and Texas started opening, that's when the jobs started coming back. It's, uh, it's also a, a national press corps, a corporate press corps and there's i overuse the expression perhaps but to me first and foremost the national media is left-wing it is marxist uh, it is corporate owned and it is suffocating because it is also caught up in the economics of it all 
it's much easier to put a, a, a bit of a wag and a White House press corps uh, and send his or her bill back to the network headquarters uh, for the, their strong efforts in asking predictable questions with predictable answers than it is to go out to Austin, Texas, uh, or, or to uh, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, to start finding out what's happening with the state legislature, what is happening with uh, the governor's office, and what are the effects of policies. It's really, uh, it's, it's television network economics and uh, corporate America politics at work uh, to really deprive the public of their right to know. Your thoughts? You know, Holman Jenkins of the Wall Street Journal had a column on Saturday that was very interesting. He pointed out that the reason corporate media behave the way they do is because they've become like other bureaucracies. And for bureaucrats, the main point is to learn which behaviors get you ahead, which behaviors get you promoted within the hierarchy. So mm -hmm. when the people at the top have these left-wing views, that's the view the organization adopts. These individuals eager to get ahead, to get the next promotion, to get a slot behind the anchor's desk or whatever the prize is that they're reaching for, they start doing and repeating the things that they think their superiors want to hear. They're not thinking about the readers or the viewers anymore. They're thinking about their own career prospects. And so the tone is set by people like CNN's executive management, for example, which made their network into an anti-Trump channel all the time. You saw competent journalists, formerly respected journalists like Jake Tapper, start to become anti-Trump obsessives, and it has destroyed their reputations. But that's how people behave in large bureaucracies. And that's the problem with how corporate media have started to operate in this country. They have basically started to operate like government institutions, and people learn what behaviors get them ahead rather than focusing on doing their jobs. Yeah, Jake Tapper, uh, something of a reform uh, flack, uh, is not always my first, uh, the first standard to which I would repair when talking about independent objective journalism. But I, I take your meaning. In, in that particular gathering at CNN, uh, he was uh, one of the brighter, uh, the brighter talents, I think. I think that's a fair statement. Uh, let, let's turn to uh, Putin and what has been made of uh, all of the disinformation, uh, misinformation, uh, the lies, the cheating and stealing of the propaganda wars between uh, Moscow and Washington. Uh, we are sitting here still waiting for what hysterically Biden had said would be an imminent invasion based on the best intelligence that money can buy. I assume that he was not talking about our agencies. Right. Well, you don't know. I mean, our agencies are not terribly well-respected anymore, given their behavior over the last few years. But we don't really know what's going to happen in Ukraine. What's interesting is that, of course, the Ukrainian leaders are telling anyone who will listen that they don't think an invasion is imminent. And maybe there's some self-interest in that because they don't want their country to panic. They don't want people to leave. They don't want people to start dumping currency and things like that. But the reality is that Biden has tried to set off alarm bells. He has tried to panic everybody. They keep using this word imminent, imminent invasion. Uh -huh. Jake Sullivan coming to the White House press briefing room late last week and telling everyone that an invasion was possible within 24 to 48 hours. And of course, the weekend's gone by and there's no invasion. They might say, well, see, that's a sign that what we're doing is working because by warning about these things, we make sure they don't happen. But 
they are just dialing up the alarm. And, you know, by this time next week, we could see an invasion. It's entirely possible. What's interesting is that this never happened under four years of Donald Trump, that we never saw this kind of a crisis on the boundaries of NATO because Vladimir Putin respected Trump and he didn't know what Trump would do. Now we have, instead of the Russians trying to figure us out, we're trying to figure the Russians out. And every time Biden is asked about this, he says, well, we don't know what Vladimir Putin is going to do. It's almost as if he's advertising how poor our intelligence is. We ought to keep that close to our chest if we really think that's the situation. If we really think that it's hard to figure out what Putin's going to do, we shouldn't tell the rest of the world that. We should make it clear what we are going to do. And I think that Biden has not made it clear that our allies are safe. Look well, what happened in Afghanistan and, and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, I do not understand why anyone would take anything said by this White House, this president, uh, to heart. Uh, he hasn't been right about anything. Uh, as uh, Bob Gates, former Secretary of Defense, he served uh, Democratic and uh, Republican administrations with distinction, a bright fellow, uh, Texas A&M president. And uh, the scholar in him couldn't resist. He had to say about Biden that the man hasn't been right on any foreign policy issue for 40 years. And here he is holding forth and indeed in charge of that foreign policy. The man is so enfeebled, so weak, he can't get across a stage without guidance uh, and assistance. And we are pretending that he's the president of the United States in full power, uh, in, in peak uh, performance mode as we, as we confront a possible national security crisis. It's not that yet, but you get it was, uh, given the behavior of this White House. It, it's, it's abominable what we're watching, that, that performance. Uh, Jen Psaki saying that the US Army report on the Afghan withdrawal didn't exist. The president of the United States saying he rejects it in its entirety. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with, with something here we've never seen before. Right. Any independent agency that produces a report they don't like is somehow discredited, like the CBO talking about how the Build Back Better bill was going to explode the deficit. Well, they weren't to be trusted anymore. We have these other economists we want you to talk to. So that's been the Biden administration's approach. But there's an additional element when it comes to foreign policy, which is not only has he shown bad judgment, but we don't know whether he's bought and paid for in these various situations because it's coming out. And my colleague, Peter Schweitzer at Breitbart has written a book about it called Red Handed. Yeah, it's coming out that Peter, we've discussed his book uh, for some yeah. time. It's, uh, and by the way, it's a continuation of his reporting on the Biden family, on the, uh, the dreaded influence, the pervasive influence in this country of the CCP. It is stunning that what they have gotten away with, they being the Bidens, the Democrats, the left wing, and corporate America and Wall Street. Yeah, and the media, which invented commercial interests for Donald Trump in Russia at, at the slightest hint of fake news from the Steele dossier or from law enforcement that turned out to be lying to the public and so forth, they would claim that Trump or his family were getting money and so forth. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden rakes in millions from China, from Russia, from Ukraine. And these questions are never asked. And during the impeachment investigation, the first impeachment, 
it emerged that the State Department had actually raised the issue of Joe Biden's conflict of interest in Ukraine. And they were told to call the vice president's office. And when they called Joe Biden's office, they were told he's mourning his son, Bo Biden. And they never got an answer. They just never got an answer to what was a glaring conflict of interest. The Bidens thrive on these conflicts of interest. And so when you look back at Biden's history of being wrong on foreign policy, you now have to look at the wealth his family has accumulated and ask whether some of his very poor judgments on foreign policy were actually bought and paid for by people willing to bankroll the Biden family yeah. budget. No, I think your point is is absolutely exact. Now, let's let's talk about um, what is, uh, unfortunately, it's subtext rather than uh, the, the glaring, bright uh, headline that it should be everywhere. And that is John Durham's uh, motion and filings Friday, uh, in which he reveals the charges against Hillary Clinton, uh, a technology company, uh, a Democratic lawyers uh, and their role in trying to first block a, a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, and then overthrow a president, the very same Donald J. Trump. Your, your reaction? So there are definitely more charges coming. We don't know if Hillary Clinton herself is going to be charged, but we certainly can anticipate based on Durham's filing that there is other illegal activity that he's aware of, and he has a lot of evidence. As you said, Clinton operatives spied on candidate Trump and then President Trump using the defense contract that a university, which has been named as Georgia Tech University, that university had housed some servers that were handling White House traffic and other traffic, and they were able to mine the data to get cell phone data from Trump Tower, the White House, the executive office of the president, and Donald Trump's private residents and all kinds of other places. Incredible. And they used that data to create a narrative about Russia collusion. They did not ignore the con they did not take into account, I should say, the contrary evidence. What they said was, look, there seem to be Russian mobile phone providers that are appearing in the data. Well, those Russian mobile phone providers had been appearing in data all over the United States since 2014. It had nothing to do with Trump. It wasn't as if the only people who were registering these Russian addresses were doing so at Trump Tower. This was almost background radiation, you can say, just everywhere, starting in 2014 under Obama before Trump even got into the race. It had nothing to do with right. him, but they gave this data to people who then used it to claim that there was secret law enforcement information on Russia collusion. They made their own false story more credible by saying that we had data on it and we've got the private information, all this sort of thing. And that was the basis for at least some of the Russia collusion allegations. And the media have ignored it. But the fact that this spying continued into the White House makes this scandal, to use a funny cliche, worse than Watergate, because Watergate was about a break in at the Democratic National Committee in 1972 during the election. But this is essentially a break in and a surveillance of. Trump's campaign, his personal cell phone that continued beyond the 2016 campaign and into the presidency itself. They spied on the president of the United States. And there's no interest in the mainstream media about this. Fox News covered it, but CBS, NBC, ABC, the others, they just ignored it on their Sunday news shows as Newsbusters has, has documented. They 
don't want to acknowledge this because doing so would acknowledge their own culpability. They believe this, they repeated these stories, they published these stories, and they've never been held accountable for it. Well, it's, we are still in the, in the world of fake news, uh, as Donald Trump first labeled it. Uh, this is a, a, an act that is still uh, hostile on the part of the corporate media to even the thought of Donald Trump running in 2024. Uh, MSNBC, a great example, they're arguing the case <laughs> that, uh, that Durham lays out in those filings before, I mean, and, and ridiculously so, if I may say, because the reality is the reality. And Durham is being a careful man. He's also being a slow man. I prefer to believe that he's slow with this investigation because he's being so careful because he knows what the blowback will be uh, when he comes down with what evidence it's, it's clear he possesses. Uh, uh, you know, Ratcliffe uh, saying, point blank to Durham that you've got enough evidence here to bring all sorts of charges. And that is where I, you know, I, Reckliff is, first of all, he's a, a very good attorney. A, a, he was a terrific U.S. attorney, as well as a DNI for a very short period of time. He knows whereof he speaks. And uh, there is much, much more here to come because it took a lot of guts for Durham to get this far. It did. And what's interesting is that Netanyahu in Israel, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, yep. seems to have been targeted in a similar way. He was targeted by Israeli law enforcement officials who were using cell phone spying technology, and they spied on him, they spied on his aides, they used private information to turn some of his aides against him, all of which seems to have been illegal and may invalidate the case against him. With all of that surveillance, by the way, they really came up with nothing. I mean, the, the corruption charges against Netanyahu are so flimsy. Things like he asked a newspaper owner for better media coverage and he didn't get it. I mean, that, that, that's the essence of the of the charge against him in one of the cases. So they're all ridiculous charges. But now there's an agenda behind them and this use of surveillance by the government. I think at some point they had hundreds of police officers assigned to the case. It tells you there were people within Israel's own version of the deep state who didn't like this populist politician who was rocking the boat. If you listen to Carolyn Glick, who's a great columnist and analyst of these things, she says there was part of the Israeli military establishment that didn't like that Netanyahu was building up the Israeli Navy. Netanyahu saw the Navy as a strategic asset, but in Israel, the Air Force is sort of the king of all the branches, and so they didn't like it. So there are these agendas, and you have the same thing in the United States. Now, we haven't seen a link yet between what Durham's come out with and the actual Obama administration or people in government uh, making these decisions. But, but we're getting close. We're, we're getting, getting close. Very I mean, close. There's very interesting timing here, which is that the Clinton operatives went to the tech executives to get them to spy on Trump in July 2016. July 2016 is also the month that we know from congressional testimony that John Brennan and the others in the Obama administration started their investigation into allegations of Russia collusion. Yep. What we want to know and need to know is, were these things connected? Did the Obama administration's investigation into Russia collusion rope in the Clinton campaign? And did it use the Clinton campaign to get at this cell phone data second or third hand? Because that would then implicate portions of our government, portions of the Obama administration, in this yeah. spying. And I think you know, we need to figure that out. I agree with you. And Joel, you know what my first clue on this is? 
uh, and my jumping off point, the incipient point for me and all of this, the biggest scandal in American history, in my opinion, not just Watergate, the biggest ever. Uh, there's only one man who would have had the arrogance uh, and I think the, the bandwidth to have laid out such a broad conspiracy and that arrogance uh, is uh, so if, if there were DNA, uh, if there were forensic evidence of, <laughs> of a propensity to arrogance and everything he touched, it would be, uh, it would be a sure test of Barack H. Obama. Uh, there is no question in my mind that he is the starting point. He is the alpha and the omega uh, of this entire sorry scandal that has uh, ruined so much of one presidency. Right. And we still don't know exactly what happened in those early January meetings in the Oval Office where Obama was giving orders to his various subordinates in the closing days of the Obama administration. You know, we hear a lot from the January 6th committee and the Democrats and the media about Trump resisting a peaceful transfer of power, which I don't think he did. I simply think he did not believe sincerely that there ought to be a transfer of power because he believed then and believes today that he won the 2020 election. But we did see that Obama, who was termed out anyway, was resisting the authority of the new incoming administration and set all kinds of traps, started all kinds of investigations designed yeah. to undermine the successor. And Democrats have never been held accountable for that, nor have the media who helped him do it, and nor have these private actors who are now finally, finally seeing some accountability in the John Durham investigation, although, as you point out, it has come rather late and rather slowly. Yeah, and... And it's it's astonishes me still uh, naively uh, as I may consider it that the national media, irrespective of uh, all of their preferences and uh, their prejudices, uh, that they will not acknowledge that there was a conspiracy to entrap the national security advisor in the first month of the Trump presidency and an outright a frame up uh, against uh, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn. Uh, it, it's it, it's there. It's in black and white empirical evidence, and the media won't touch it. Well, to add insult to injury, the person who now has Michael Flynn's old job, the National Security Advisor, is Jake Sullivan. Jake oh, Sullivan yeah. was deeply involved in spreading the Russia collusion hoax. He was involved in this false story about. Alpha Bank being some kind of a conduit for Russia oh, to yeah. reach Trump. That has now been the core of the Durham charges against Michael Sussman, the former Perkins Coie lawyer. Sullivan also briefed the media on Russia collusion in 2016. He testified in front of Congress at the House in 2017 that not only did he believe Trump was colluding with the Russians, but he believed that Michael Flynn was colluding with the Russians. And he, instead of being held accountable for these lies, has been promoted to Michael Flynn's position. And the media never ask him about it. They never yeah. say, how can we trust what you're saying about Russia and Ukraine, for example, which is a matter of fundamental national security, international right. security. How can we trust what you're saying when you lied to us about Russia for years? And this never comes up somehow. We're talking about American lives, and balance of power. And nobody says, Mr. Sullivan, can we trust you on this, given your own personal history of lying about Russia? Uh, he is all of that and more a lying SOB, and uh, and we're uh, we've become such a uh, precious little country that we don't talk like that too often. 
except I will guarantee you, we talked like that, Joel, I pray and forgive me for being so straightforward. Uh, we talked like that here on the Great America Show, and we are delighted that you joined us to talk about all of these important issues. Uh, I, I, it's our custom to give our guests the, the very last word, uh, and uh, this is that opportunity and that moment. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I hope you'll come back soon. Uh, Joel Pollack, the last word is yours. Well, I'll just add that the issues that you're focused on, that you've been focused on for years, are the issues in 2022 in terms of the congressional elections and the fate of the country. The bread and butter issues that affect working Americans, those Americans are the core of the Trump constituency. They're also the core of a constituency that's emerging of people who didn't think they were Republicans or wouldn't vote for Republicans, but are voting now in Virginia and other places. There is a backlash, not just against wokeness, but against an elite that is trying to drum the rest of America out of business. And the issues you talk about on this show are at the core of where the debate needs to be. If Republicans want to win in 2022, if Democrats want to try to save as many seats as possible, they have to tune into these issues. Unfortunately, I think Democrats are trying to save themselves in other ways, and Republicans tend to get lost in abstract arguments over internal politics. But these issues that affect working men and women, moms and dads, grandparents, kids, these are the ones that are getting the truckers out in droves in Canada. These are the ones motivating people to go to the polls. And that's why your show is so valuable. Well, thank you very much for that, Joe. We appreciate it and all the work that you do. Uh, and you just described all of my peeps whom I love uh, and where the American dream shines uh, brightest. Uh, and for whom the American dream uh, is a birthright, and we need to do everything we can to preserve it, uh, the American way of life. Joel Pollack, Breitbart, thanks for being with us. Please come back soon. Thank you. Glad to be with thank you. Thank you, Joel. And we thank you for being with us, and we appreciate your time. And we also want to say again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And God bless you, and God bless America. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.